Let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you as uh, your needy children, as those who are not uh, able to stand uh, on our own. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, shed uh, the world's uh, doctrine of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and being uh, totally independent and freestanding. God, we, uh, we deny our autonomy. We deny that we are uh, meant to live apart from your grace, apart from your uh, love and kindness and spirit, that it was always your intention that human beings would be spirit-led, spirit-filled people. Help us to uh, die to self, to die to autonomy and rebellion, and to yield more and more to your spirit and be conformed to the image of your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so I have the uh, unenviable task of the very difficult uh, doctrine of uh, assurance. Assurance is a very difficult topic, as uh, Pastor Brooks alluded to uh, last week. Uh, I did a lot more, I think, research and digging on this one than I have done uh, in, for almost any of these um, you remember where we are. Uh, I'm not uh, Clint, uh, but uh, I, I'll quicker than he does uh, rehash where we are. You remember that we started out the Westminster Standards talk about God before time. What is God like? Then what does God do in the world? Uh, what's going on? Covenants, Adam, uh, decrees, uh, all that stuff, the fall, the ugliness, and then uh, the, the working of that out, the, the fact that we are called and saved um, that that is uh, then what is under a large group of things of sanctification, which is theology talk for how God makes you more and more holy. Does anybody know the Latin word for holy? Starts with an S. Sanctus, sanctus right. So that's, where, that's why the word sanctification, if somebody was coining it today, they'd probably you know, go for like, Holyfying or, or something uh, like that is, uh, is, is, the, is the same meaning there. What makes us holy? So this is the last one uh, in that uh, grouping. And it is uh, coming after last week, uh, Pastor Brooks talked about uh, the uh, perseverance of the saints. And I very much agree with what he said, that it should probably be called uh, the preservation of the saints. And that it is, it is something... God is doing and, and less of a focus on us. And that's definitely where I'm going to go today. Um, one thing that um, I was talking with Pastor Brooks last time after he finished that um, is, is sort of hinted at in the confessions, and it became a real big doctrine uh, after uh, there was a guy named uh, Witsius uh, who really sort of put the, put the cherry and the whipped cream on top of covenant theology uh, in, the, in the next hundred years after the confession. And so it's hinted at in here, but not super duper described, is the eternal covenant. So what some people call the covenant of redemption, uh, the fancy Latin phrase is the, the pactum salutis, uh, the eternal peace covenant. So the idea is that um, we have been given the kind of God's eye point of view to a certain extent about how all this works, right? So like, what are the covenants here? So just you guys named me here. What are, what are some covenants that you know of in the Bible? What's what? 
Never flood the earth again. So that one is to Noah in Genesis 9, the Noahic covenant, it's called, named after the dude uh, most prominently associated with it. Yep, that's one. The Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, is that uh, a a seed of David will sit on the throne forever, uh, which at the time would have been like, yeah, we're going to own this thing, says, you know, the Davidsons. Uh, But then the the idea that there would be a forever living king, we know now. Uh, But yeah, the Davidic covenant... The Mosaic Covenant, right, is that the, the most important one of all, taking up, you know, five books of the Bible there, is God laying out the covenant that he made at Sinai uh, with the people of Israel, that they get so much law and uh, explanation from God. Instruction is what Torah means. The Mosaic Covenant, the si- or sometimes called the Sinaitic Covenant, the one at Mount Sinai. Abrahamic, that's where we are on, you know, coming up in an hour here, is the, the promise that uh, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And it's not that they will be blessed by becoming Jews, but that they will be blessed as the nations, uh, which makes no sense until you get all the way to the stuff that we start reading a, a week from now here, right? Like, Next week is, is Advent, and so the pre-Christmas, the readings of the angel Gabriel's annunciation to Mary and the foretold birth of John the Baptist, all the people that we're about to start reading uh, in, in a week's time, they're all going to mention the promise to Abraham coming true, that the blessings to all the nations, the salvation of the world, not by conversion to the people of Israel, but by uh, being somehow that they can be saved as Gentiles. Mary and the others all mention this as like finally starting to come to pass in uh, Luke 1 and 2 in those places that we read. Big one here that we, we've talked about in this Westminster stuff here, right from the very beginning. We've missed the first one. Covenant of Grace, Covenant of grace is almost the beginning. One before that here, I'm looking at him. The Adamic covenant here, right? We've got, uh, we've got uh, <clears throat> not you, but uh, a different Adam, um, is that uh, some people call it the covenant of works, other people call it the covenant of life, um, that over all of this, before any of this happened, right? Have you ever received, I know Pastor Brooks has said it, uh, that I, I don't, I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly. It's in Hebrews. It's one of the benedictions and blessings uh, that he who brought the the good shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, bless you, and so forth, is that these eternal words get used to talk about the covenant. And even, you know, when we talk about the messianic covenant, the, 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 the Jesus covenant there, is that it seems, and it, it very much is, grounded in a particular place in history. Jesus holds up the cup and says, this is my blood, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you that we have a very particular time and place and history of things happening, but that many places in the Bible, we see this, these words of like eternity being used. And Jesus very um, interestingly talks about going to the cross uh, as his baptism, he mentions in a couple places. So this idea that there's a kind of covenant behind all the covenants, the eternal covenant, that 
if, if covenant really is the sort of governing dynamic that really, it's just a fancy way of saying relationship governed by promise, that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, exist as a, a covenanting God. That, that they agreed before the foundation of the world that the Father would elect the people who he was uh, going to save. The Son would incarnate and die for the righteousness to be purchased, to redeem those people uh, from their sins. And the Holy Spirit would indwell us and save us uh, and apply the work of Jesus Christ to all of our hearts, that, that all of this is from eternity past, in a way that we just like cannot even begin to comprehend, God has always been about saving his people. So when we come to the doctrine of, of assurance here, um, there's, there's a very real sense in which we need to not be so subjective about this and say, how do I feel? And that that is what is meant by assurance but more to the point of saying objectively what is true, that, that this, this eternal reality, this eternal covenant that God has made among himself for our salvation stands behind all of our confidence, all of our assurance, all of our well-being comes very much from who God is before he made the world, before he did anything this was always his plan and who he is. So uh, that was something that was, was very much in my uh, heart and mind last week, uh, listening to Perseverance. Uh, let's read uh, chapter 18 of the Westminster Standards, uh, chapter subpoint one, paragraph one here. Let me read that to you. Hypocrites and other regenerate men may deceive themselves with false hope and carnal presumptions about their being in God's favor and about their being saved. Their presumptions will die with them. However, those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus, who honestly love him and try to walk in good conscience before him, may in this life be assured with certainty that they are in a state of grace. They may also rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and they will never be ashamed of that hope. So there is this category that's being introduced here. And um, Sproul, this is not original to me, everything good that I know, most of it comes from having listened to Sproul. Even on the radio, you can hear him writing on the chalkboard is that he's, he, a couple times I remember him commenting of like, I know I'm on the radio, but I can't help it. Right, yes. Well, and you can, and so like, and this Westminster stuff too, if you get on YouTube, his teacher John Gershner, who just sounds like he just grab, he, you know, gargled gravel. He just has the scratchiest voice ever. And, and you can see how much Sproul just unconsciously imitates him when he gets intense. And just like that gravelly thing comes out. It's super fun to hear. But that you can see Gershner definitely was the one who got him hooked on the whole chalkboard thing. So um, you have to imagine uh, that I can draw sort of the four quadrants kind of thing here is that Sproul would, this is, this is the most math teachery thing ever to do in, in a Sunday school, but that there, there's, the, there's the four coordinate grid of, of usual like graphing kinds of things. And that there is whether you know it or you don't, 
and there's whether you're saved or you're not. Okay? <clears throat> so the, the happiest category, as we all learn from children when you clap your hands, if you're happy and you know it, uh, is that the, uh, yeah, oh, thank you, there we go. So that it is, this, the, the best thing of all would be to actually be saved and to have that full assurance. That's what we're in right here. But the Bible spends most of its time, Jesus spends most of his time, the, overall the Bible spends a majority of its time talking to the, the scariest category of all, is that you can be unsaved and think that you are saved. That, that false assurance here is what we're talking about. Hypocrites and ungenerate men who deceive themselves with false hope. Um, that that is the scariest category of all, that that even exists. And it is, it is the one that the Bible spends most of its time. We, we know we, it's the gospel, it's the good news, but that there is a very real sense in which the Bible is like stressing the bad news of you think you're saved and you're not. So it's, it's very important that we, we read the Bible correctly discerning who we are and who is being addressed. So how many of you have ever read through Ezekiel? Good for you. That is a, is a difficult book. And the, the extent to which it feels like someone has a shotgun right between your eyeballs and is just like screaming at the top of their lungs that, you know, you're a, a robber, get out of my house. Is, is really, I think you're, you're reading it right if it, if it feels that way. And I think for a lot of us as people who are sensitive hearts of like, maybe that's me. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm the, the one under judgment here um, is that there are, there are some very scary things in, um, in the book of Ezekiel. Rob Rayburn, my old pastor, um, uh, preached through Ezekiel. It was a, it was a long year. Um, and, and that there was a sermon, I'll always remember just, even the title of the sermon, uh, which I think was about for like Ezekiel 10-ish, was the point of no return. That there, there is a line that Israel crossed where God would not forgive them. And, you know, everything in us recoils uh, and, and freaks out to, to get such a, a statement about that you know, if, if, if Jesus says, you know, if your neighbor, if your brother sins against you seven times or 70 times, seven times, you will forgive him. But that in Ezekiel 10, there's this very, I, I, we watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind uh, as a family the other day. There's this very sci-fi moment where the, the wheels within wheels and the chariots covered in eyeballs and all the, the crazy imagery of the, uh, the cherubim and the seraphim taxiing out and leaving the temple. That, that Ezekiel is given this vision and he goes in and he sees inside the temple of, in Jerusalem people uh, having uh, sex with temple prostitutes and putting up bugs and evil creatures and icons of uh, all the other gods, of all the other ancient Near East gods. And God says, I've had it. I'm done. And taxis out and leaves and goes off to the exiles in Babylon to be with them there. So I feel, I think, I mean, I, I'm surely you guys tell me here is that I can't be the only one that these, these 
reading these passages where Jesus is, you know, Jesus does this too, of woe to you hypocrites, you know, just unloading with both barrels on the Pharisees, is that I certainly, you know, feel like I'm reading one of those passages and my first, in- is that me? Is, 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 the, is the sensitive heart, I think, to say like, these seem like super strong rebukes that would then come after, uh, after people. Is, is, is he coming after me? Is, is I think the, the, the temptation to want to question that if you're a sensitive Christian person. And it just, it seems very, very scary to, to get this category of like, you have the assurance, let me take that assurance from you, but that he's going for the people who have a false assurance. Does that, does that make sense? Who, who, is, who is God trying to take their assurance from in these passages? Does that, does that resonate with you all there? That there, there are people who need to have it taken from you. So there are passages of the Bible that, want, that aim to take away your assurance. And, and that doesn't mean that that applies to you. Is that, you know, the Bible is not talking to everyone at all times and all places in the same way in every verse. Every verse is inspired, but that doesn't mean that every verse applies right now to you. Is that fair to get? <clears throat> um, I don't, where's my... Uh, Bible here. So I was, I was listening, I was, I was watching a lot of things here. Lately, I have been very much um, enmeshed, embroiled in trying to understand Catholicism. Um, and this is a very, very relevant topic, um, is that Catholics say we have it all wrong about uh, assurance, is that there has been grace infused into you. You are righteous because God has given you an infusion of grace and uh, therefore, if, as long as you don't commit, as long as you don't die in a state of mortal sin, uh, then you can be assured uh, by the church that you are saved and going, going to heaven. And so a lot of times, they're, they're, these Catholic apologists that I've been listening to are, are very much going after uh, the assurance that, uh, that people are, are trying to get in a, in a reformed uh, context, and they explicitly uh, say that. <clears throat> but um, it is, it, and so one of the primary texts here is the, the, that I had to deal with this week and thought a lot about was that Sproul um, read uh, from uh, Matthew chapter 7, um, <clears throat> depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you, uh, that text. And, um, and so the the, the Catholics uh, attempted to recontextualize it and say, like, no, you know, you're not reading it in context, you Reformed people here. So I do want to, let's read the context here. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 7. And so, honestly, when I found the Ligonier video of Sproul doing it, he, he started at 21. Um, and I'm going to try to have a good argument against the Catholic people here and start back at verse uh, 15. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7 starting at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And remember that all of these like verse numbers and paragraph headings are not inspired. They're not part of the original Bible. So just continuing, still Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So far from destroying a sense of assurance here, I think this is what I've just been trying to get here from paragraph one, is that there is definitely a time when Jesus and the rest of the Bible are taking full-on aim at false teachers, at people who have a false confidence that they should not have and attempting to take it from them. That, that the context really is, so the, the word prophecy to me is what connects it there. Verse 15, beware of false prophets. And then verse 22, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? This is not a text that is meant to say to the Christian in the pew, as it were, that uh, there's no amount of uh, assurance that you should have. At any point, anybody could have it all ripped away from them. What Jesus is is going after here is the false prophets, the people who are uh, producing bad fruit, claiming to be leaders, claiming to be prophets and leaders of the people of Israel, and yet... They cannot, by virtue of their office, claim eternal security uh, because they were leaders in Israel. The Pharisees who were here listening to the Sermon on the Mount, it says in other places, that there, is, there are people who Jesus does need to take their assurance from, and, and there are people who, in other, way, in other places, we'll see, he gives it to. Yeah? One thing, too. Two verses. Um, one of the texts that for people who think the, the mass majority of humans that are born will go to hell, the, the go-to verse is Matthew seven fourteen or fifteen. And to rather narrow the gate, why? And the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, but for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So if that's just talking about your average person. I don't know why anybody would ever have children. Yeah. Because if it's even 50 50, I don't want those thoughts, let alone 9, 10, 1. But then you keep reading. Beware of the false prophets. False prophets. So he's talking about those who are under the teaching of the false prophets. If you're under that teaching, then it is very easy for you to be destroyed by their teaching. And, and that's really great because then today, what are the majority of Christians? Catholic is the single biggest uh, denomination. <laughs> And if, and if anybody ever tries to tell you that, that Catholics love, they used to do this one, nobody does it anymore, but they, they used to be like, oh, Christians, lead, you know, Protestantism leads to schism and denomination and fracturing and like, oh my word, this Pope is, is just bur- burning all the bridges. He, he, did you guys see the news that he, uh, he fired a bishop in uh, Tyler, Texas? And, and that this guy who was like super, you know, 
conservative. There's a movement within Catholicism called traditional Catholicism and that people who want the Latin mass and don't like the modernist, feminist, crazy stuff from Vatican II, he's one of those guys. So like there, there, there is, there, we, we are as close as I have ever heard about for, since 1500 for the Catholic Church to have another schism is today. Like it is, and there's a, there's a group like uh, Mel Gibson um, who made the Passion of the Christ movie is a thing called a set of the contest. They say that there have been, that the, it literally is just Latin for the chair is empty. Looks like seat is vacantism. Um, and that they say there has not been a real Pope since uh, 1965. And so that is like the fastest growing Catholic subgroup. Like Jesuits and Dominicans are hemorrhaging numbers like mad and set of contests and people like that are growing leaps and bounds. There's uh, two in St. Louis and one here of that kind of Catholic, excuse me. It's, it's, it's real great disproof of Catholic, but that here you, you, you are required to judge for yourself, your teachers, that you cannot just, I mean, it's not a zero-sum game where you can just say, like, bad shepherd, they led me astray, 100% on them, I just was following along. There is definitely, you know, extreme judgment for shepherds who are unfaithful and teach other than the word of God, but that there's, it's not like God is just slicing up a pie. You are required for yourself to think and to judge, like the Bereans, does this conform, does this teaching conform to the word of God? And so that narrow gate versus the wide path is so applicable today when this, you know, 60% of people who say they are Christians are Catholic. <clears throat> Questions about taking away assurance, I guess, would be sort of my summary of point one there. Yeah. You know, um, we, there was all the devil cast one vote against you. God cast one vote for you, and it's up to you to break the tie. Yeah, that's, right. that's my favorite quote. I just I love that. But there's the passage in First Corinthians. I remember when I came across that, kind of blew my mind. Where he says, "Test yourself." He yeah. Doesn't say, "Did you ever pray a prayer?" Right. He says, "Test yourself. Examine yourself to see if you're in faith." Well, and the Great Commission: Go ye into all the world and get decisions for Christ. Yeah. Is that that's. <laughs> No, is that make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you, is that a lifetime of discipleship we're about to see here is, is actually the, the point, not easy believism, one time, once saved, always saved, in the worst sense, like we talked about last week. I think, too, that it's similar, uh, did you pray the prayer, there's a similar problem there, I think back to when we were talking about justification, that that is basically same mechanism as the Roman practice of like penance. It's just a lower uh, <laughs> bar. More, more low church penance. Yeah. yeah more like more, but more, um, it takes it from the institution of the church and, and basically makes it an individual thing. Yeah. Um, but when you boil them down, they're both, uh, they both equate to a work. So again, it's, if you 
look for assurance anywhere or your justification outside of Christ and his imputed righteousness, you are by definition looking to a work to justify you before God. Um, even when we need to be careful, I think, we say you're justified by faith alone. It's not justified by faith in your faith. I know the doctrine of sola fide, therefore right. I'm saved. Measure. Measure of emotional whatever. It has to be faith in Christ, which will produce fruit. Right. Which is in the context of Matthew 7. That's what's going on. Yeah. So with that, oh, sorry. I agree because the ending in Matthew 7, like to, to close this teaching, is all these split paths. Like two gates, two kinds of teacher, two kinds of prophets, two ways of, um, well, the not everyone says the Lord more that those who do the will of my Father and then build on the rock instead of the sand. It's this hear my teaching and put it into action. Like that's that's the, the through line through all. Uh, it's not just faith and faith, but it is faith that produces that yeah, produces fruit. That, you know, that's that's where you that's the end game, that's the that's the goal of all the teaching is to transform your life into a different way of living. Mm-hmm. The beginning and end of the book of Romans, the obedience of faith is Paul's phrase there. Yeah. No. no. <laughs> when he says to examine yourself, to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Yeah. I mean, what does that big test look like? You know, first John says, if you say you're without sin, or uh, I'm sorry, if, if you continue in sin, um, yet you claim God, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So if, if we... It's a very lopsided thing. So like the one that you're talking about, first John, there are tests for disqualification is that if you deny that Jesus came in the flesh, so the heresy is called docetism, God was just pretending. I mean, God is too holy to ever come and be an icky meat puppet like us. Like, just, just gross. Like, no, God would not, God is God. He wouldn't do that. And so if you say that, you are disqualified. You are not a Christian. You don't believe in the actual Jesus who was. So there are, First John is, is there's, a, there's, you know, if you, if you don't, if you, don't have fellowship with the church. If you are attempting to loan Christian here, then you don't understand that Jesus one is winning for himself a bride and you are disqualified. There's, there's these tests to disqualify you, but there is not a test to qualify you that says if you check all of these theological or behavioral boxes, then you can be assured. And so, so this is where coming into to, to the next one here then is to say, there, there was a friend of our, a uh, guy that uh, Clint and I used to teach with, uh, a guy named Jason. He, he, he taught uh, apologetics. And so, like, it, it's, I, I always love calling, and I got to teach apologetics last year, is that it really should just be called defense against the dark arts. It's totally, it's totally that. And that for him, Jason, when he gave me all his curriculum, it was an amazing amount of stuff. The, the crucial difference here, there's this Anglican theologian uh, named Leslie Newbigin who has a book and a whole thing called proper confidence. And so Jason, my friend, says the difference is certainty versus confidence. Very, very subtle distinction here. So walk with me here. Think about this. If you have certainty, there is something that you have grabbed a hold of and brought it into yourself, and now I'm set. 
Now I'm done. I understand. I am certain. I own that certainty. And it is, it is, it is in a very real sense, in you, yours. Whether you are a rationalist and you say, I have got a perfect system all laid out. I could Roman numeral analyze the universe and I figured it out. Or you're an emotionalist and, you know, somebody, a romanticist who says, like, I have got the right feelings, the right way, I feel the right way about the right stuff. I have certainty in my gut. Uh, Or if you are, even if you are just like a despairing, nihilistic uh, hater, uh, kind of, you know, these these people who, nothing works, the, the... the, the thing that they're still looking for is that they want there to be some certainty that is mine, that I take into myself, and that's where I look. Either you've got it or you're despairing because you don't have it. But what we say, what Clint said a second ago, is faith in Christ. I have confidence in whom I have believed, is that I am sure about Jesus and he says, you, you are mine, Robert, you are mine, Joshua, and that I don't ever get to a place of independent certainty, but that I'm always at the place of dependent confidence. Does that make sense? Am I explaining that? It, go ahead. Well, it does, um, even to what Adam was saying, it seems like even that passage in Matthew when he says, not the one who says these things, but the one who does the will of so it's like, I guess it's trying to walk, walk that line between, okay, my faith is, is, what if someone says their faith is in Christ, they say that, but their life is a wreck. Yeah. You know what I mean? The um, disqualifying thing. This, yeah, yeah. So, the, yeah, so his fruit, you're saying, sh- should remove his, his uh, uncertainty. Or his, his certainty. Or his certainty or his, whatever, or his confidence. Whatever yes, his, okay. yeah. Okay. His certainty in uh, I've made it is that you can, you can have that stool kicked out from underneath you okay, by your so bad fruit. fruit you, look, you can look at your fruit to disqualify you. Yes. And keep looking at Christ too. And that we should nonetheless affirm what we have said many times here as we go through the Westminster Standards, that our pop, uh, conversionalist, baptistic-y uh, American Christianity says faith equals salvation. And it says, ha-ha, we're not Catholic. We're not faith plus works equals salvation. Boo. But that the, all throughout the Reformation, nobody would have thought of that except the extremely crazy Anabaptists who were just like nuts. And, and everybody knew they were nuts. Um, is, is that what we are saying, what this is saying, what, what the scriptures say, is that faith produces salvation and works. And, and that if you try to move it to the other side of the arrow, uh, you're, you're putting the cart before the horse. You're getting it all backwards. Um, and that from the outside, looking at false shepherds, we can say, oh, no, you have drunkenness, lying, deba- whatever sin, craziness, is that you are clearly not producing good uh, works. Therefore, I do not submit to your leadership. You are not a good shepherd. Tell me if this framework works. Yeah. Um, so if you use the idea of faith of what you believe is actually real, um, one friend said that's going to shape what you hold to be important. Like if I believe that, um, well, if that's important, then that shapes what you actually do. 
So I can say, like, I believe that generosity is a virtue, that, that giving to others is important, but it then makes sense that I would then give to others generously. Um, but if you don't, it's like, well, do you actually believe that? Right. Because um, it, it goes both ways. You look at your actions and then drill down, okay, based on what you're doing, what does it say what's important to you? Based on what's important to you, what do you believe is actually real about reality? Yeah. And so faith is, I believe that... Um, Jesus is the Son of God, and his ways of teaching is what's the, the most, like, that's the most accurate description of reality and the pathway of human growth and flourishing. That sets up the values of Jesus, which then should set up behavior. So if your behavior doesn't match what you say, it's a question like, well, do you actually believe it? Right. Because when push comes to show, You probably actually believe something else. Right. Is that I may say Christians still sin, but if I have a mentor, a friend, and they commit some offense against me, and I'm like, I thought you were a Christian. If I, in the moment, blurt that out, then I'm revealing that I may say one thing theologically, but then in the actual moment, what do I believe in my heart of hearts is something else, is that I don't think I'm a Christian because I still sin, so if I really was a Christian, I would have quit sinning altogether. And I may recoil and say, no, that's a terrible idea, but then I live it out, proving what I, what I actually believe. The, the fancy phrase for th- that, if you've heard it, uh, lex orendi, lex credendi, is that what you, um, what you say on your knees is uh, what you actually believe. This, this is why, so all of us, I'm sure, have tons and tons of family members and friends who are dyed-in-the-wool, hardcore Arminians. Who, who say, you know, free will, God is a gentleman, he'll never, like, you have to make a free will decision, that's how you get saved, it's your choice, your choice, your choice. And yet, we all count these family members who say that as our true Christian brothers and sisters, because when they get down on their knees, they're praying, God, please save my unbelieving father, please save my unbelieving friend. And if they really believed that, what they said on their feet, then they would not pray on their knees for God to do it. God is like, I'm stuck, bro. I got nothing here. Like, your friend's fresh out of luck here. You know, I'm, I'm stuck. And like, they don't believe in that God, actually. They don't pray to that God. Now, there are people who do. They're called open theists, and, and they're, they're not Christians. But that what you, yeah, there is a, the, the, the test of what do you actually do when push comes to shove shows what you believe, very much so. Uh, let's read paragraph two, and yeah, let's just go through this. <clears throat> this certainty is not based on the fallible hope of guesswork or probabilities. Rather, it is the infallible assurance of faith established on the divine truth of the promises of salvation. There is also the inner evidence of spiritual insight given to us by God to which these promises are directed. And there is the testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirit that we are the children of God. The spirit is the pledge of our inheritance. By him, we are sealed until the day of redemption. So there's what we've been saying about uh, the external things that you can see about somebody. Uh, There is the outward workings of things, but that there's also impossible for anybody else to telepathically peer into your brain and your heart and discern for you, you have to do this for yourself, is that um, do I uh, believe these promises? Do I have the spirit 
in me telling me that I am a child of God, that, that Jesus is the only natural born uh, son of God begotten before all eternity, but that we are gods both by creation and then by adoption after we uh, rebelled. That um, does your spirit, does your inner life tell you you are a child of God? And, and this is not something that anybody else can reach in and give you, uh, but it is, it is an interior reality that you have to judge for yourself. Does that make sense? I feel like we've hit all the things here, so I'm going to read paragraph three here, and maybe, maybe we can make it, maybe not. I don't know. Did you want to? Well, I, Go ahead. Well, I, I can ask you paragraph three, since it's in here, too. Okay. The infallible assurance is not so essential to a faith that a true believer may not have doubts and conflicts about it, possibly wait some time for it and grow into it. So this is, a, this is meant to be a comfort. Some people have gotten this very confused. I was reading about in Burkhoff, um, is that some people then think that it's not essential that you feel assured is seemingly what's being said here. The idea is that it does not come at the same instant that there is a working this out over time is what they were trying to say here. But since the Spirit enables believers to know the things which are freely given to them by God, every believer may come to a full assurance of salvation by the ordinary working of the Spirit without unusual revelation. No Pentecostal craziness there. Therefore, it is every believer's duty to establish the certainty of his calling and election so that his heart may be filled with peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, with love and thankfulness to God, and with strength and cheerfulness of obedience. These are the true products of assurance, which is never conducive to an undisciplined life. So what I was going to ask, especially that last sentence, going back to the question about works, which Yeah. They use infallible assurance, certainty, and it's very strong language. They don't say confidence, they say certainty. And then conclude by saying these are the true products of assurance, which is never conducive to an undisciplined life. So assurance cannot, uh, I think, with the idea is bear bad fruit. Right. So what, and then especially in chapter 16 on good works. It seems like there is an indication that, well, I don't know, maybe I'm just misunderstanding, that we can have assurance, or maybe works can produce confidence. Like John 15, 8, if we have good works, we can know because God works, is the one working out the good works in us, that we can have confidence that we do have the Spirit in us, and therefore we can I think the, the key thing there is looking back at, uh, so like after the little footnote 11, therefore it is every believer's duty to establish the certainty of his calling and election. Both of those are outside of me. And so there are good f- fruit that will come from this. But that, so to me, the, I think it was Burkhoff I was reading, and he was talking about objective versus subjective assurance here, this chapter on assurance, is that 
subjective assurance. Do I feel happy? Do I feel confident, calm, cool, collected, cucumber, you know, in the refrigerator, just like, yeah, I got this, and, and everything is just coming up sunshine and rainbows for me all day, every day. The Bible is never trying to tell you that that is the goal, the expectation, the norm. That uh, the last point here that we probably won't get to um, is, is that people go through H-E double hockey stick. Real believers. We talked about last time, you mentioned um, Cowper, is that how you say it? Yeah, is that that guy, dude, the, he was so uh, depressed and just on an emotional roller coaster ride that sounds like the ultimate and unenviable. And, and in the, the last one here, we probably won't get to four, so I'll spoil it, is that one of the footnotes is um, Psalm 88. And I, as somebody who has had depression at various times in my life, I am so glad that Psalm 88 is in there. It is, it is such a consolation because it doesn't come to the, you know, it's, a, it's all the usual pleading like, how long, O oh Lord, do my enemies will triumph over me? I am, you know, wetting my pillow every night with tears. Everything is just the suck. And, and then it ends. And there's not, like every other psalm that goes through that, then comes to, and God met me and God assured me and I got victory over my enemies and... It was, it was, it was uh, you know, the, the credits roll, the, the guy on the white horse rides off the end. But Psalm 88 is still a good work people are witnessing. And, and, and most important of all about Psalm 88 is that he's talking to the Lord. That, yeah, so, is that he's not cut off and like, where is God? And he's gossiping with his friend about this rotten Jesus who ruins the universe. Um, is that he's talking to God about it all and pleading. But that especially while you're going through it. You can, it can just be all over the place. And if you are wrestling with God, what Israel's name means, then it, it does not mean that in this life, everything will be subjective assurance. And that, you know, it's just like um, happiness. If you pursue happiness directly, it, it just goes through your fingers like sand. If you go through the tasks of life that God has given you in your calling of where you're at with the people who are in your life, happiness is the joyful byproduct of all of that. And that's what I think is going on here in so many words, is that the subjective assurance that we all want, I mean, who doesn't want to be cool, calm, and collected and happy? Um, but that, that, that particular thing there of establishing the certainty of the calling and the election is, is to me, that is the part, is the objective, which is why I started, you, you were late, boo, uh, about, I was talking about the uh, covenant of redemption, the idea, the eternal covenant, that my salvation was God's plan before time was invented, what? Like, like of, of just how radical uh, in God, the Trinity, like, what it is to be the Trinity, as far as we can understand, is to elect, to incarnate, and to apply this salvation to, to us, to the church, to the elect. And that the more I think about that, the more I am like, this does not depend on me. This is not, you know, how muscle up can I be about? Like, this is, this is from that God, the good God who is so loving and kind and beneficent and everything, that he would be willing to die uh, just for a 
wicked sinner who, who hated him, uh, that that's the kind of character of the God that we serve who loves us before all time. That is where my objective assurance comes from. And then my subjective assurance in and out flows from that. That, that, that to me, yeah, we're not going to get to, but if you want to read on your own here, uh, there's quite a really good description here. If you have all, if you have ever battled with like the last word there is despair of, uh, uh, if you have ever wrestled with anything like that here of depression, sadness, ups and downs of life, I highly recommend there is a great assurance that it is, it is uh, all pun intended, that it, it is not only for it is not an expectation that the Christian life will be a super rock star, nothing but ascent all the time, every time, um, and that there will be times when God seemingly withdraws and that Jesus himself went through such things um, so that we would never ultimately go through that. All right, uh, let's uh, pray, and uh, I will conclude uh, this Sunday school. I do recommend to you reading not just point four, but the, the proof text that go with it. Let's pray. Dear God, we ask that you would uh, give us assurance that uh, we would be people who are confident in what a good God we serve, who you are, uh, as revealed in your son, Jesus Christ, as applied in our hearts, that we would cry out, Father, Dad, uh, by the spirit of adoption, the spirit of your son, Jesus Christ, that if we know you, if we have met you, it is because your spirit is at work in us to bring our calling to, to bear, our election to bear, that we are uh, those who are regenerate and desire to walk in the good works that you have prepared beforehand for us. Help us to more and more uh, gladly uh, obey and to not be dependent upon the emotional roller coaster ride of our own vacillating hearts, but to trust you more and more, the, the bedrock of our lives, the, the sure foundation. And uh, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.